This is the Journal of American History podcast for September 2015. We welcome to the podcast today Rebecca Jo Plant, Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of California, San Diego. Rebecca is a co-author of an article that will appear in the September 2015 issue of the Journal of American History, The Crowning Insult, Federal Segregation and the Gold Star Mother Pilgrimages of the Early 1930s. The co-author of this piece is Dr. Francis Clark in the Department of History at the University of Sydney, Australia, who could not join us for the podcast today. Rebecca, thank you and welcome. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. So I want to start uh, by reading something in your introductory pages, and I think this is a good place for us to start. What follows is the first in-depth analysis of the all-black Gold Star Mother pilgrimages and the protests they inspired. It is a story rife with paradox. Even as the government segregated the black pilgrims, it recognized their civic contributions as war mothers and widows in an unprecedented and lavish manner. This jarring contradiction stemmed from a fundamental conflict between the ideal of martial citizenship, which promised compensation for military service, and racially based conceptions of American identity. So briefly, uh, tell listeners about the basics of the controversy itself over these pilgrimages, and then uh, take us through the kinds of paradoxes that uh, you and Francis write about. The pilgrimages, I have to say, the, the whole program, even aside from race, is actually very curious or paradoxical in that it's uh, the legislation is enacted uh, at a moment of prosperity in March of 29, but the pilgrimages themselves, they take place during some of the very worst years of the Depression, so from 1930 to 1933. That seemed very um, notable to people because the, the goal was to take women, uh, surviving mothers and widows of soldiers who remained buried in Europe. Many people had had the bodies repatriated, but those who remain to offer them the chance at government expense to go to Europe. Uh, but what happened was the way the trips evolved, they um, became much more lavish. And uh, they're really like two-week vacations, um, essentially, and, and not counting the, the week it took to get to Europe and then the week it took to come back at that point. So basically what you have is in 1932, when bonus marchers are protesting, in Washington, D.C., you have, you know, other officials and the U.S. Army is kicking them out. You have other U.S. officials, Army officials who are officers taking Gold Star Mothers around uh, Paris on sightseeing tours. So that's, you know, that's the first big contradiction, which even doesn't touch on the racial contradiction, which is what we're concerned about in in this paper. When and how did the notion of segregated pilgrimages arise? Well, that's interesting because uh, it's written into this sort of official document about rules and regulations about how pilgrimages will be governed. But people don't, and that comes out, I think, in January of 1930, 
but it's not until the spring that the question as they're putting together the groups that the questions began to arise, like how are people going to be transported? And all of the other groups are um, they're sent together according to their states or their region, but the black folks or mothers, of course, are segregated out. And the contradiction, you know, is at the heart of this article is is essentially what you read in that passage that on the one hand, you know, the idea that you would segregate the mothers and widows of soldiers who, you know, in the rhetoric of the time had sacrificed their lives for the nation. I mean, that's pretty much as low as you can go. It's why we title our paper, The Crowning Insult. Um, and yet, at the same time, the idea that the federal government in 1930 would take, you know, African-American women, many very poor, to, to Europe on these fancy two-week trips is is also kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> Indeed. And and we'll, we'll talk about uh, this fascinating reaction uh, from these women and also the pressures that were put upon them by others. But let's stick with this notion of contradiction and paradox here. Uh, again, to repeat, this jarring contradiction you, you both write stemmed from a fundamental conflict between the ideal of martial citizenship, which promised compensation for military service, and racially-based conceptions of American identity. By martial citizenship, uh, you mean what exactly? Well, um, I'm drawing on work of other scholars, including scholars who have, we're drawing, I should say, on work of scholars like um, Lucy Sawyer, scholars who have published in the Journal of American History about um, the ways in which, in her case, Asian Americans were able to claim citizenship on the basis of military service during an era when all other avenues for them were closed. We're looking at the ways in which with African Americans who, you know, the and, and this, of course, is a derivative kind of citizenship because the men in question have passed on. It's the, the women who have that identity as mothers or widows. What claims do they have on the state? Hmm. Do they are they going to be treated as black women, or are they going to be treated as um, mothers and widows of soldiers? And the government tries to kind of do both, yeah. <laughs> which is what's so crazy. I mean, you can't do both. You can't honor somebody while you're segregating them, but that's what they try to do. Yeah, I, you you both pointed out uh, well into the piece. Uh, which I found fascinating that that while racially based citizenship trumps, uh, as we know this story, but but certainly also into World War II and beyond, you said there were times. Where, well, what if what if we just this one time allow uh, martial citizenship to trump racially based citizenship? Um, right, an exception. And I think that with the pilgrimages, that's, you know, this idea of an exception is is very prominent. The fact that, you know, I mean, 1929, the government, this is pre-New Deal, the idea that the federal government is going to sponsor a program like this is, you know, it's a very penny-pinching <laughs> Congress. It's it's very, they're cutting federal spending for programs for mothers and children. The Shepherd Towner Act goes down in flames right about the same time the pilgrimages are voted in. Mm. So 
the exceptional character of this legislation and the fact that it's conceived not just as a benefit, but also as a commemoration. It's something that's supposed to inspire patriotism and display American greatness abroad. I mean, those, I think that more than anything is what ends up, you know, making it okay to spend government money in what really seems like a, a quite extraordinary manner, in a manner that the, the mothers themselves who lobbied for the pilgrimage did not originally ask for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And thank you. You, you both write uh, also the pilgrimage episode also warrants scrutiny because it provides insight into the rapidly shifting terrain of black politics in the 1920s and early 1930s. So can you take us uh, a bit into how the controversy over these pilgrimages uh, played itself out in um, American politics and black politics particularly? Yeah, uh, this was really fascinating to explore the um, ways in which uh, this unfolds in the period, in the years that African-Americans as voters, those who are able to vote at this period, are um, switching their allegiance to the from the party of Lincoln, the Republican Party, to the Democratic Party, and becoming part of the New Deal coalition. And the Gold Star Mother pilgrimages, they figure, um, you know, they're obviously not the main cause for that shift, but they figure into it in interesting ways. They are referenced quite a lot, uh, even in 1936, after, you know, the program's already been over for three years by that point. We still found people talking about the segregation of the women. So that was interesting. But then it's also interesting to look at aside from partisan politics, what's going on within African-American communities where, you know, before the war, black club women, I mean, my initial thought and Francis's initial thought when we were delving into this research, we immediately thought, well, this is something that we're going to see black women at the forefront of, right? (laughs) That we expected to see club women um, who had been very prominent in in the pre-World War One era, and we're still active in the 1920s, we expected to see them uh, really leading the campaign against this. And that is actually not what we found. What we found was that despite the fact that all the victims are women, it's, it's men who are associated with the NAACP um, and with the black press who are the most prominent spokesmen against the pilgrimages. And then the the other, you know, the, it's kind of interesting the way I, I ended up feeling like it almost provided a um, a kind of glimpse into the full range, the spectrum. You could look at how different groups from Garveyites to um, communists responded, and and get a kind of sense of the the, the whole range of positions that African Americans were taking on questions of integration segregation, and to what extent, in what way or what strategy should be used to improve Blacks' plight in America during this time. Mm, mm, thank you. Uh, let, me, let me raise just another uh, issue that you write about, uh, and uh, obviously central to, to the piece. Most importantly, you both write this little-known and compelling story 
allows us to glimpse the myriad ways in which a group of so-called ordinary black women responded to an extraordinary circumstance, one that forced them to weigh powerful appeals to racial solidarity against deeply felt personal commitments and desires. This was a, a really fascinating, compelling, and, and major part of your piece. So take some time and, and walk us through the the complexities of response, the burdens placed upon these women, their reactions, and the fascinating uh, way that they wrote about their experiences overseas. Well, this is our favorite part of the story, is looking at the pilgrims themselves. And it's the part of the story that, honestly, we came to laugh because of the way the archive was organized, basically. Um, in the National Archives, the, the quartermaster corps was the group of the part of the army that ran the pilgrimages. And they have a huge collection of pilgrimage papers that are organized with their records. But the letters that individual women wrote to the War Department in communicating about the pilgrimages turn out to be filed in the burial files of their sons, their mm. individual sons. We didn't get that at first. So, in, in fact, um, you know, the very first draft, or well, it wasn't. We didn't view it as a draft at that point. The version that we submitted the first time to the JAH, we hadn't really found that gold mine yet. So. It ended up changing the direction of the paper quite a lot because the women, you know, they did not respond, of course, with a single voice. That's to be expected. A minority of them refused the pilgrimages on the grounds of segregation and never changed their minds about that. Another group of them refused initially and then ultimately did change their minds in part because other women had gone on the pilgrimages and came back and wrote to them and basically said, you will be treated like a queen. Um, you, you don't want to miss this opportunity. Mm. About half of the women who had written letters of protest to the government end up actually and saying that they're going to boycott the program um, end up going. Um, and then an, uh, another group, um, they accepted and never changed their minds. Um, that's the largest group. And then, interestingly, there was a group that initially said no, initially refused the offer. And then apparently because of the, you know, they didn't want to have anything to do with the federal program. And then apparently because of the kind of reports that they were hearing, uh, they, and the government would write to the women every year and ask again. And and they ended up saying, yes, we do want to go. So there was a, you know, a very wide range of responses. What was so interesting was that, you know, they really focused on the kind of treatment that they received in uh, the hotels, in the kind of service, the quality of the meals they had. And, you know, this is apparent in the letters from white pilgrims as well. It's not completely distinctive to the African-American pilgrims. Lots of the pilgrims talked about the extraordinary, exceptional treatment and service that they enjoyed, which frankly was, you know, for the vast majority was unusual. But for the African-American pilgrims and for, for women in particular, of course, this this took on a whole other political dimension, you know, to be treated like a lady, mm -hmm. to be 
mm-hmm. treated in a way that was not just recognizing your um, citizenship as an American, but was doing it in the gendered way that white women's citizenship was recognized to a respectable lady. That was very interesting that their response to the the men who were trying to, the middle-class men who were essentially saying, if you go on this pilgrimage, you will betray your son. You'll betray the memory of your son. They, and you'll be, you know, a traitor to the race. I mean, the rhetoric was pretty extraordinary. And, and they, again and again, pointed to how they were actually treated as a way of responding to that criticism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you mentioned, I thought it was fascinating, you both mentioned that uh, they, some of them began a, a counter <laughs> protest uh, letter writing. Uh, right, a kind of counter campaign, yeah. They basically were, and of course, this, this was something that the the pilgrimage officials really encouraged the idea that, you know, they're going to counter all the bad press and the Hoover administration obviously has its own motives for this. It wasn't out of benevolence. They had taken a lot of flack and were toward the segregation and they, you know, they actually don't want to give the women further cause for complaints. They want to, um, appease them. And uh, so they do. They go, and that message comes down from up high. And so they really actually go out of their way to, to really try to um, treat the, the pilgrims, you know, even better than the white women, as one, if such a thing is possible, as one of our sources states. So, you know, that in and of itself is kind of, again, it's, it's counterintuitive, but of course, that had to do with partisan politics and with concerns about America's image abroad. So they, you know, they were criticized, of course, in the French press for segregating the women. So, so these women did, you know, several of them. One of them writes 94 letters, she doesn't just write letters. She actually travels to rural churches at her own expense to talk about her experiences. In some of these cases, these women were, um, they formed relationships with some of the people who were running the pilgrimages. This woman in particular, Willie Rush, they had provided pretty extensive medical treatment for her because they singled her out as someone who could be a good spokesperson for the group. So, you know, she had something to gain as well. She was interested in going uh, again as a hostess, which didn't end up happening. But, um, but you know, that's not to say that it wasn't genuine, that people are acting out of a variety of motives, I think. Yeah. You, you point out the, the burden that is placed on these African-American women that, that white bereaved mothers don't have to face, the pressures being put on them. Don't go. You you have a wonderful quote here from the defender. Mothers don't shame those boys further by going to visit their graves on Jim Crow ships, and yet, yeah. as mothers, they want to go, uh, even though they're they're being asked not to. And you both write at the same time. Male activists and commentators interpreted the government's act as an affront to black manhood in general. Uh, and mm-hmm. so here's yet another burden placed um, on these black mothers. Can can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, this language of kind of race motherhood, Aaron Chapman and some other scholars have written very powerfully about how that develops in the 1920s or becomes even more pronounced and the idea that it's incumbent. Part of what being a black mother means is instilling this kind of, you know, fierce racial pride and this ability to, um, ha- you know, give your children the strength to go forth into a hostile world and and still thrive and thrive. And that's, of course, an extremely tall order. But what it means is that, you know, black motherhood is politicized and in quite intense ways. Um, and, and that's true, you know, from the get-go, but it becomes more articulated in the 1920s, that, that um, discourse of race motherhood. So the men at the Chicago Defender and the NAACP, they are very much drawing on that rhetoric and um, using that to try to, you know, persuade the women to behave in what they see as the manner that will best forward the well-being and political progress of African-Americans in general. And doing that, refusing the pilgrimages, making a stand against segregation is what these women need to do. I mean, we talk about this at the very end of the article. We look at one particular woman and her response to, you know, getting the invitation from the government. And she was a woman who had grown up in South Carolina, had lived most of her life in a very segregated area. And for her, you know, it's easy to see how the idea of accepting the pilgrimage and being treated in a manner so radically different than she had been treated for most of her life by white, that that actually seems like a more radical stance Mm. than protesting because of segregation. So it's complicated. And the way people respond to these issues, of course, it has everything to do with their class, where they're from, um, their gender, uh, even generational differences. So there's a lot at play. And part of what we really wanted to do was kind of unravel that complexity of, you know, what led people to take the positions that they did. Sure. And which you do very well. Uh, the the last um, section before the conclusion <clears throat> is absolutely fascinating uh, section called the cattle boat rumor, party politics, propaganda, and collective memory. Uh, this was a story with which I was totally unfamiliar. So take us, take us into the cattle boat rumor, what the rumor was, why it had such power. This was interesting because in newspapers, you know, as early as 1930, people are, because the women, one of the ways in which they're treated differently, the the African-American groups are much smaller than particularly the the white groups that went initially. And the white groups that went were sent on these ocean liners, luxury liners. And the black groups were sent on ships that were... um, they had originally carried freight, but they'd been retrofitted as passenger ships. And as it turns out, these ships, the same ships would be carrying the smaller white pilgrims in later years. But what gets the press, of course, is that initial distinction between these, you know, luxury liners and these, you know, second class the ships that could only provide sort of second class transportation. So there's a lot of focus on the, sh- the the mode of transportation 
um, early on. That's part of the what's highlighted in the very initial protest. This, this idea of like saying like you might as well have sent them on a cattle ship. That that using that kind of language um, as a sort of metaphor takes off pretty much as soon as the protests are heating up. But then by 1932, you start seeing accusations, and this is particularly in political context, that the Republicans, that the Hoover administration had sent the women on cattle ships, just this outright assertion that that's how they had been transported. And that rumor really takes off. And uh, to the point that, you know, when I, well, Francis picked up on this before I did, but when we were initially looking at these sources, it, it seemed like, you know, we, we were confused ourselves. Like, would they really have been sent on scholarship, you know? So we had to, like, investigate. And, and there's other secondary work by, you know, John Sam and Lisa Boudreau, who have written about um, the pilgrimages in general. Um, you know, it became, it was easy to discover pretty rapidly that they weren't sent on cattle ships, but even some secondary sources, you know, relatively recent books would, would say they were sent on a quote cattle ship. And it was very confusing. What, what, how were they actually sent? And that's in part because that rumor really, um, it, it gained a lot of cachet. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's promoted for partisan political reasons to um, to lure blacks away from the the uh, Republicans, but it's clear that it just resonates so deeply the idea of you know sending women and and particularly honored women, mothers and widows of soldiers um, to Europe on. In, in the kind of transportation cattle ships at this time they were for immigrants who couldn't afford regular passage would work on cattle ships to get to Europe. They were very rough male spaces, not unlike the smoking cars that African-American women would have to ride in and that created such outrage um, that, you know, this was a intense point of contention um, around segregation for middle-class women in particular. So, so, you know, it, it, it just, the, the notion of transportation across the Atlantic Ocean in really substandard conditions, that's just the resonance to slavery, to um, segregation, it, it was just very strong, and it made that particular rumor incredibly resonant, I think. Yes, you you both write, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, that... Uh, this captures uh, your words now, a larger truth concerning the gendered forms of humiliation and racial persecutions that blacks routinely experienced on the shadow of Jim Crow resonated with uh, images of, of the Middle Passage. And then um, I was fascinated with the way you conclude this section that the women's own accounts were so strikingly at odds with this narrative underscores how anomalous their experience of state-sanctioned Jim Crow had been, so exceptional as to be quite literally unbelievable. But that's fascinating in this particular historical circumstance. It also, it seems to me, speaks to the challenge that we as historians have that sometimes 
the the power uh, of of rumor uh, is is more powerful than than human experience. Right, and you know the fact that that rumor had um, really gained so much traction, it of course colored our initial um, approach mm. to this story. And so, you know, what we were focused on initially was the the differential treatment. So we were trying to identify these points in which the treatment really differed. And mainly the way in which it really differed was what I already said about the ships. And then in New York, the black women um, stayed at um, – the, the Harlem YWCA and at Black-owned hotels while the white women were staying at, you know, very elite hotels in Manhattan. You know, very notable distinctions, right? That was the story that we initially thought we were telling. And, and it's when we read the women's letters that we really felt like we had to step back and reconsider our approach because it was too powerful. Their words were too powerful to be discounted, that they, that this meant a lot to them, how they had been treated on these pilgrimages and that, um, that, that did not carry into the black press, which was, you know, mostly male voices and that that story was, you know, you, you really had to dig deep to get to that story. That story was hard to find. And it was, against what, you know, was counterintuitive and against what everything in that that we know about black history at this moment would be one to expect. So um it yeah, it took us a while to get there, yeah, to well, be honest. A, it's a very compelling part part of the uh, of the essay, Rebecca. So uh maybe we can conclude. Um let me ask you, you and Francis, like all other authors in the JH uh, have to come in under a word limit. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've memorized this, 14,000 words, including citations. Um, but let's suppose that... I think you guys want to fill a little over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's suppose that we had said to you, wow, you know, this is such a great story. You can have as many words as you want, which, of course, other authors wouldn't appreciate. But let's just suppose we had said that. What what are some of the other uh, avenues that you both would have uh, gone off on um, out of out of this story? Um, I think that the primary one would be the looking at how the French responded, and really we have some sources that talk about that the way that they um, encounter you know, American racism and their uh, attempts to treat the women with particular respect to show them that, you know, France appreciates what it's, um, what the colored soldiers have done for, for us. That, that, that's a very interesting part of the story that we just, you know, it, 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 we couldn't include that. And, there's even a wonderful, there's a wonderful picture that we didn't include as well of the pilgrims in front of what looks like Mount Vernon. And except that there's an American flag and a French flag flying at the top of the building. And what it actually is, is it's a replica of Mount Vernon that was at the famous colonial exhibit in 1931 that was held 
outside of Paris and that attracted millions of visitors and was, you know, France's attempt to sort of showcase its colonies. And um, the United States and several other nations also participated, but, you know, here they have Mount Vernon represented, and yet there there's no representation of the people who ran the plantation. There's no represent, representation of slaves at this colonial exhibit. So, you know, and then the black women are, are, you know, presented there in front of Mount Vernon as American citizens, and yet they're being segregated. And, you know, just to contemplate all the complexities of that, like a colonial exhibition that these African-American women are being brought to, like what they must have thought about all of this. It's just, you know, I mean, I didn't find, we didn't find a lot of records that actually spoke to that particular event, but if we had had more room, we would have tried to dig even deeper into into that aspect of the story. That uh, would be a great part of uh, of the story, for sure. Uh, and maybe there'll be you know other opportunities uh, to write about it. We've been talking with uh, Rebecca Jo Plant, who is associate professor in the Department of History at the University of California, San Diego. She is a co-author with Dr. Francis M. Clark, who's a senior lecturer in the Department of History at the University of Sydney, Australia. Uh, they've written the Crowning Insult. Federal Segregation and the Gold Star Mother Pilgrimages of the Early 1930s, which appears in the September 2015 issue of the Journal of America History. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Well, it was very much my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in December for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jahcast at oih.org.